Hey, what's up, guys? Anthony and Andrew here. Today we're going to be talking about the civil aspect of the Canadian law system, in particular class action lawsuits. Uh, I'd like to introduce my guest, Mark Canafari. He's a lawyer who's a member of our community. We're going to be going over two of his most well-known civil cases, the Canada Dry case and the case regarding the opioid crisis in Vancouver. So, Mark, could you please tell us a bit about yourself? Uh, yes, so I graduated law school in uh, 1998. And uh, following that, I um, joined the Crown Prosecution Service and uh, I worked my way up there and ended up um, working in the Criminal Appeals and Special Prosecutions Department. And uh, while I was there, I ended up doing um, Special Prosecutions, which are fairly serious matters. And um, I, I was asked to work as a trial lawyer on the area India bombing, and uh, that took up a, a fair amount of my time. And uh, in addition to that, I've done international fraud cases. I worked with the FBI, and uh, I've done some fairly significant uh, trials. Um, I worked there for for about fifteen years, and um, I really was just looking for a change. Um, I was always interested in in moving over to having a civil practice at some point. And the timing uh, presented itself and uh, I'd done almost everything you can do uh, with the Crown Prosecution Service, so I decided to, to go it on my own. And um, I started a small practice in Burnaby and I've since moved to a large uh, law firm downtown. And my main area of practice there is split between commercial litigation and also doing class action work. And the class action work to me is the most rewarding. Um, and the reason is because, you know, you're holding big companies to account for trying to take advantage of consumers for profit. And uh, for some reason, it just always bothered me when I saw that. I hate seeing people being taken advantage of. And I hated seeing it as a prosecutor, and I hate seeing it now. And um, so when I have an opportunity to hold these companies to be accounted for significant misdeeds, um, I enjoy doing it. And so that's an area of my practice that I've been doing now for the last five years, and, uh, and I'm going to be continuing doing that for some time. So we understand that you were part of an opioid case for Johnson & Johnson. Yes, uh, it wasn't just Johnson & Johnson. There's about 20 defendants. And what initially happened was down in Florida, the state brought uh, criminal charges against a number of the opioid uh, producing companies um, because there's a crisis down there. And there's also one here in British Columbia. And about a year ago, the uh, British Columbia government commenced a civil class action proceeding for the recovery of healthcare costs, such as having to deal with these people in an emergency and policing costs and fire, fire department costs for having to attend and ambulance costs. But they didn't seek compensation for the end users that got addicted. And the reason a lot of these people became addicted was 
because the drug companies themselves advertise these different opioids like hydromorphin or oxycontin as not being addictive when it turns out we know now from the documentation that they did know and they did this for the sole reason of increasing profits and the results have been catastrophic we know that in british columbia i have to travel to work downtown every day and i see it at Oppenheimer Park, I see it throughout the downtown east side, and it's horrible. And so my firm commenced a class action, which is moving along in concert with the government's class action, except we're seeking damages for the end user. And our client was a very productive citizen. He had a full-time employment, a very good job with an excellent employer, and um, he was uh, an impressive person. And he had back surgery, and he was prescribed opioids, and he wasn't warned of the risks because his doctor was advised there were no risks. And over the course of about five years, he became completely addicted to the point where his doctor said, you have a problem? and I'm going to cut you off. And so he wasn't put on any sort of opioid reduction program by his doctor at all, he was simply cut off. And this is somebody who, again, was an impressive guy and living a, you know, an exemplary life and he ended up having to go to the downtown east side to buy heroin. And uh, it was highly unfortunate and there's a lot of people in his situation and that motivated us to commence an action for that group of people. So that sounds like a pretty comprehensive case. So were there any uh, criminal charges involved? That's a good question. And down in the US, there, there was a criminal charge. And up here in British Columbia, I was really hoping that there would be. Um, I used to do special prosecutions for the government. And to me, it ticked all the boxes, which are, will there be a substantial, substantial likelihood of conviction and is it in the public interest? And to me, it meets both of those requirements. So it's unclear to me why that didn't happen. Um, so I can't really comment on that, but you know, the jury's not out, maybe it still will. And if it would, I would be, uh, I would applaud that. Sure. And just another point here. So since you were both a Crown and a civil lawyer, I was wondering if you could comment on the different standards for uh, beyond a reasonable doubt in comparison with uh, civil and Crown cases. There is a big difference. And, uh, and that may have factored in as well. I mean, it's certainly easier for the government to prove their case on a civil standard, which is essentially just slightly more than 50%. Um, whereas, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt is, is much higher. It's hard to attach a percentage to it, but I think most people in the system would agree it's north of 90%, which um, clearly is much more difficult. So I believe you mentioned there was a similar case against Johnson & Johnson in Florida, and they were criminally charged? They were, and uh, it wasn't just Johnson & Johnson. There was about, again, about 20... 20 of these companies, um, Bear as well, and there's a company, Nativa, 
And there, there's a number of pharmaceutical companies that are involved. And um, the damages the state was seeking were, and I'm just guesstimating here, but I think they're around one and a half to $2 billion. And the court down in Florida uh, awarded damages of $500,000. And since that time, there's been other civil cases brought in the U.S. Um, there's actually been hundreds of them. And um, about a month ago, uh, a number of them were settled for, again, around another $300 million. And so it's, it's the settlements are significant, but there's been evidence that with at least one of the companies, uh, they knew what they did was wrong. And they knew that eventually there was going to be legal action and they would have to pay damages. And so there's evidence that they've been funneling billions of dollars offshore to avoid having to pay some of these judgments. And we were just discussing a precedent in our law class about we only ever covered precedent with other Canadian cases. So how much relevance would an American case have? You know, when it's exactly the same facts, it certainly has a lot of relevance. I mean, the U.S. system and our system are very, very similar. Um, They're not identical, but they're extremely similar. And Canadian precedents always are better. And in fact, it even goes beyond that. Like in British Columbia, if I use a British Columbia Court of Appeal case, that has much more weight than if I use an Alberta Court of Appeal case or a Nova Scotia Court of Appeal case. And so even within Canada, you know, the the value of different cases varies depending on what province it's from and what province you're handling um, your action in. And so when you go down to the United States and rely on one of those cases, I mean, potentially it has a little bit more weight or, or pardon me, a little bit less weight. But when the facts are identical, like like they are in this uh, opioid case and like they are in this Canada Dry case that I'm doing as well, where they pled guilty or not pled guilty, but they agreed to a settlement down in California, then it carries a lot of weight up here, especially when, you know, a company like Canada Dry, you know, they're, they're, they're facing a class action in California and they agree to a settlement and the settlement has to be completely transparent. It's before the court. It's of public record. Everybody can see exactly what they settled for and why. Um, it's very difficult for them to come up here uh, and take a different position because they can't. They're simply bound to the admissions they've made down there. And in many ways, they're bound to that settlement. And so usually what will happen is when there's a settlement down in the U.S., we'll see eventually a very similar settlement up here in Canada because they, they do understand the precedential value is is significant and they're not going to be able to get around it very much. Okay, thank you for that. I think we're going to wrap it up with this case and we're going to move on to the next one now. So earlier you briefly mentioned your ginger ale class action lawsuit and I believe you said there's a settlement in California. Could you expand on that case for us? Uh, I can, yes. Um, There'd been a number of actions over the years, um, some in Canada, some in the U.S., where people were 
of the belief that there's no actual ginger in the drink. And that mostly came from the fact that when you look at the ingredients on the label, on the beverage, ginger isn't actually included as an ingredient, which is cause for for some concern. And so the actions um, were prosecuted down in the U.S. There's class actions down there. And down in California, uh, about, about a year ago, uh, Canada Dry entered into a settlement. And um, as part of that settlement, they agreed to remove the labeling, uh, which stated it was made from real ginger. And interestingly, they agreed to do that in California and throughout the U.S., but for some strange reason, they were not agreeable to doing that in Canada. And uh, I'm not entirely sure why. So the case in California, what did they admit to? Well, they admitted to a number of things. Um, I mean, firstly, there was evidence that their marketing department years ago came up with a marketing plan where they wanted to monetize on the health benefits of ginger. They had taken polls and done market research, and they realized that people associated ginger with health benefits. And, uh, and that's legitimate because there's actually um, legitimacy in that, and it's been medically proven. And so they also realized that if they could use the term made with real ginger, then people would think there's actual ginger root with health benefits in the beverage. And they had estimates of increasing their sales by about 8%, which is significant. I mean, the volume of this drink that's sold down there is, 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 is quite large. And so that really would help their profit margin. So then, um, so then they took steps to come up with a, a way that at least they felt could justify using the representation made with real ginger. So how much ginger, if at all, actually goes into the product? Well, I mean, that's not the heart of the claim. And so we hired an expert up here in Canada as part of our class action that, that we're pursuing. And uh, the, expert, the expert took, uh, took various cans of ginger ale and uh, tried to extract the ginger which was very difficult because there was such a small amount. And uh, after rigorous testing, our expert determined that there was 0.05 milliliters. Now, one drop from like a medical dropper is 0.05, so it's one drop. And um, they found that one drop, which is it's just it's just barely anything, was used in filling seventy cans. So each can had one seventieth of one drop, and the way they created this this ginger is they they took ginger root, and so I mean we have to concede that it did start with real ginger root, which had health benefits. 
and vitamins and nutrition. So, I mean, we can't disagree with that because they did use real ginger root. But then what they did is they ground it all up and they processed it in ethanol. Just like when you make coffee, it percolates. And the ethanol destroys any nutritional value whatsoever. And then they boil off the ethanol and then they're left with this extract where they admitted down in California had no health benefits at all. And they used 170 of that in, in each can. And they used that to justify the representation that the beverage was made with real ginger. It's our position was that a consumer would associate made with real ginger with the drink actually having some real ginger root and a significant amount. They would not associate it with 170th of a drop of highly processed, extracted in ethanol, ginger extract. There are a few popular uh, advertisements for the refreshment that did claim that there were, was real ginger in it. So uh, how, did, how has that been used in the case? Yeah, I played uh, those for the judge. And uh, so what they did is once they satisfy themselves that uh, using 170th of a drop of highly processed um, ginger extract with no health benefits, which was sufficient for them to make the claim it was made with real ginger. The marketing team then decided to, to uh, sort of monetize on that by way of a commercial campaign that they ran. And the, com the commercial campaign um, revolved around um, Jack's Ginger Farm. So it, it, it's a ginger farm where uh, there's this young guy and he's farming his ginger and um, he goes to, to grab some ginger to harvest it. Um, and when he pulls it out of the ground, rather than get ginger root, uh, what you get is a bottle of Canada Dry ginger ale. And there's no doubt in at least my mind, and I would say most consumers' mind, that Canada Dry was trying to convey that there was a significant, if not an entire, ginger root in each bottle of Canada Dry, when that is nowhere near the truth. So we've been talking about class action cases. So what's the actual importance of having class action lawsuits? Well, the importance of it is, is this. Um, I mean, companies, especially large companies, they know full well. You know, for example, you know, whether it be Canada Dry or whether it be um, Red Bull, which was the subject of a class action in Quebec, um, they know that if they, they misrepresent something on a can uh, or, or a bottle of their beverage, you know, and a consumer pays 2 or $3 for that and the consumer finds out they were misled, I mean, if class action legislation was not available, there's no way a consumer would ever hire a lawyer and sue them. It's just simply impossible. The amount of money is just far too low. And because your individual damages are only going to be 2 or $3, and your legal expenses are going to be off the charts. And so in response to that, the government wanted to be able to keep, you know, big companies in check and make sure that, you know, if they did things like this, they wouldn't be able to get away with it. 
And so they created class action legislation, which allows consumers to band together and use one lawyer who then can sue on behalf of millions of, of claimants and seek damages uh, for all of them. And, uh, and so that's what I'm doing uh, in Canada Dry. I represent um, everybody who's ever consumed a bottle of Canada Dry in Canada, except for Quebec. Quebec's a little bit different. They have a slightly different legal system. And so Quebec's excluded um, from what I'm doing. Although that being said, um, I'm working cooperatively with Quebec Council. Um, so we're moving in the same direction. And so that's the real purpose of it, is just to be able to give consumers a voice and not to be exploited by these big companies when individual consumers wouldn't be able to pursue a lawsuit because it just financially wouldn't make any sense. All right, so thank you, Mark, for joining us and enlightening us on class action lawsuits and their importance in the legal system. Well, uh, thank you, Andrew, and thank you, Anthony, for coming over. You, you two were obviously very well prepared, and some of your questions were very insightful. In fact, some of them I've been asked by articling students and even young lawyers. So I congratulate you on doing your research. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Mark Canafari speaking to the importance of class action lawsuits, lawsuits that hold the big corporations accountable and represent the people. This has been Anthony and Andrew, and I'm signing off.